You're listening to WTJU Soundboard for this Friday, March 10th, 2023. I'm Arian Ballou, and this is something a little new for Soundboard. We're collecting local and state news stories that we've aired over the past week and delivering them right here in your podcast feed. We've also got a new segment, Arts This Week, where we cover the latest in Charlottesville arts and culture. This week, a new play down at Live Arts. But uh, let's jump into what's new this week. Last week, Virginia's Superintendent of Public Instruction, Jillian Baylow, announced her resignation from the position. She had been on the job for just over a year. WTJU's Nathan Moore spoke with Richmond-based journalist Peter Galaska. Well, this is all to do with Glenn Youngkin, who, um, you know, as a conservative Republican, he, when he was elected governor, um, he really seized upon the idea of the need for conservative approaches to education and uh, no critical race theory or anything like that. And he's, you know, thought that the parents are being shoved aside in the educational process. So he brought in a woman from Wyoming, uh, Jillian Below, um, who is a Republican politician, and she was supposed to really um, move ahead with his plan. So she was the head of the uh, schools out there in Wyoming and then became the head of schools here in Virginia. What did she do to move ahead with Youngkin's plan? Well, it was a mess. I mean, it, you know, she got into trouble because she tried to redo the curriculum for, um, you know, social science and history. And that ran into a firestorm of, of opposition. And the second was sort of a, an unforced error. I mean, she... Apparently, in budgeting, she somehow missed uh, $201 million that was supposed to go to the schools when she prepared a budget. And so the, both of those you know, kind of seemed to lead to her uh, announced resignation. And it's a big blow for Youngkin. For Arts This Week, we chatted with Katie Rogers, Marketing Manager for Live Arts Community Theater. I asked her about the new show opening this month, Crumbs from the Table of Joy. Crumbs from the Table of Joy is a coming-of-age memory play by Lynn Nottage. So it's told through the eyes of a 17-year-old named Ernestine Crump, and her family has just moved from Pensacola, Florida, up to Brooklyn, New York in the year 1950. So you watch this unfolding story of a Black family as they settle into their new home, but the whole thing is narrated by Ernestine and her reflections on this story and her coming-of-age tale, really. It is opening March 3rd. It's going to run through March 19th in the Gibson Theater. That's our larger theater space. It is directed by our education director, T. Ames. It's a favorite play of theirs, and they've really built this amazing community, amazing family with the cast and crew. So it has been a pretty special process. Crumbs from the Table of Joy is also special because it's Live Arts' annual Mentor Apprentice Show. So a lot of teenagers worked on this show alongside designers. So we're really proud of them and we want to show off all of the amazing work that they've done. Live Arts also offers an audience talkback where you can go behind the scenes of the show and speak with cast and crew. It's going to be after the show on Thursday, March 16th. You'll get to take a peek behind the curtain and see a little bit more about the process. Talk to the director and the cast and maybe some of the designers about what it was like putting the show on. For more information on Crumbs from the Table of Joy, visit livearts.org. Charlottesville City Schools wanted to address their current staffing issues by hiring formerly incarcerated people, but in the General Assembly session, state lawmakers said no. Jesse Higgins from Charlottesville Tomorrow here to tell us more. 
Yeah, so City Schools is really struggling um, to hire people. So one of the things that they thought about doing to increase the pool of people who could apply was to ask the state lawmakers to adjust the state law a bit and allow people who have been formerly incarcerated, who committed nonviolent felonies, to be able to work for the school district. It was an idea that the school board had last fall. So they put it on something called their legislative priorities list, where they go to their local legislators and say, hey, this year during the upcoming General Assembly, consider floating this law. Because right now, there is a very, very, very long list of what the state calls barrier crimes. So if a person committed one of the crimes on this list, they can't work at the school. Many of those crimes are crimes against the person, violent crimes, but there's a lot of other ones too, a lot of like drug-related offenses. If you've committed one of these crimes at any point in your life, you can't work at the school districts. So city schools wanted to readjust that a bit and allow people who've committed some of these crimes the option and allow the school district the option to hire people who've committed these crimes. So they asked the legislators and the answer was a resounding and yet very silent no. It wasn't even that the legislature voted this down. Not one lawmaker even wrote a bill. It was just a, we're not touching this. This winter, Charlottesville's homeless shelter staff is facing demand for beds that is double what they are able to accommodate. Jesse Higgins with Charlottesville Tomorrow here to tell us more. This is a problem that our local shelters weren't exactly expecting, partly because this is such a warm winter. And so when you have warm weather like this, emergency shelters especially tend to not have as high a demand on them. There's not as much demand for emergency beds. But that's just not been the case this year. The number of people experiencing homelessness and seeking emergency beds, we've been told is about double what our local shelters can accommodate. And our local shelters can accommodate about 100 people a night. So it's a little unclear exactly why this is happening. Um, There's a lot of factors at play here. So our our reporter, Erin O'Hare, actually talked with not just local shelter staff, but also several people experiencing homelessness about what's happening. And some of the consensus is this is partly because of inflation. People who are kind of living on the edge are getting pushed over the edge because everything is just so expensive. Rents are going up right now, in addition to food costs and everything else skyrocketing. So another right now is that we had a lot of COVID relief funding from the federal government in the last couple of years, last few years, um, and that's ending very quickly. So that could be a factor that people are seeing. Something else, we had one shelter worker say that she's meeting a lot of people who have just moved here from out of town. The trouble they run into is that they come and get a job and that the housing market is really hard to find a place that's affordable. Virginia's General Assembly wrapped up its session over a week ago, but there's still an impasse on the state's budget. Until that budget gets figured out, the state's new cannabis control authority is in limbo. WTJU's Nathan Moore spoke with Richmond-based journalist Peter Galaska. This is a um, state agency that was created to control medical use marijuana, basically. 
you know, there was a big push back a couple of years ago when the Democrats were pretty much in charge of the General Assembly to uh, create this agency and push forward with medical use and even recreational use THC. Well, what's happened, of course, is that Republicans won the House in elections recently and they've been slowing it down. At one point, the control agency was supposed to get something like 11 million bucks uh, to do things like regulate advertising and control it. But now it may only get three million bucks and nobody knows quite what's going on. Well, to clarify, their current budget is you know, eight million for this year, 11 million for next year. But Youngkin's proposed amendments and the Republicans proposed amendments would knock that down to three million. And so the agency is kind of like, what do we do next? What do we do now? Yeah, right. They don't know. And that's the whole thing. I mean, Youngkin has come out and said publicly that he really is not interested in creating a market for marijuana. And this is just one way he can pull that off. Uh, meanwhile, you know, cannabis policy in the state remains in this strange limbo place, right? Exactly. I mean, it's legal, but it's not legal. You know, you're supposed to be able to use it, and yet you can't sell it. You can go to jail if you sell too much of it. Yeah, I mean, looking into your crystal ball, does this just stay in limbo until there's Democratic majorities again someday? Probably. I think that's a, a pretty reasonable uh, prediction. The nuclear industry and the Biden administration are pitching the idea of small modular nuclear reactors. A number of coalfield towns in southwest Virginia like this idea. WTJU's Nathan Moore spoke with Richmond-based journalist Peter Galaska. Virginia's not the only place considering it. I think there are like seven or eight states that like the idea of small um, backyard-sized <laughs> nuclear reactors. Um, there's a lot of a lot of environmentalists say it's a horrible idea because it doesn't do anything about waste. But don't forget the the, the Navy's been doing this for years. Uh, Newport New Shipbuilding has been one of the major um, you know contractors involved with installing them on warships, and now the idea is somehow. Um, you can use some of the infrastructure from, you know, abandoned or about to be abandoned coal facilities in southwest Virginia to um, stick in these small nuclear reactors that are cheaper, much cheaper than the big ones. And they could somehow, um, you know, contribute to energy without the carbon dioxide. In terms of greenhouse gas emissions, small nuclear reactors don't emit you know, carbon dioxide and, and other greenhouse gases, but of course they do leave a bunch of radioactive waste. I mean, what's the plan? Yeah. Well, there really isn't one. The United States has never really had a solid um, disposal program for the uh, nuclear waste ended up in Nevada or something. And that's really the problem. What's the potential actual timeline that this could happen if it, if it moves forward? Well, a lot of it depends on what the federal government does as far as subsidies and things like that. Don't forget that the giant old-fashioned nuclear power plants did get a lot of subsidies, even though they deny it, they did. Thanks to Peter Galaska, Jesse Higgins, and Katie Rogers for joining us this week. This has been WTJU Soundboard. Our Arts This Week segment was produced by Britton Graber, and the news stories were produced by Katherine Hansen. You can hear the news live on WTJU 91.1 FM weekdays at 9 and 4, and Arts This Week every Wednesday at noon and 7. I'm Arian Ballou. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Moren Alasco and Jay Pun. Subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts and check out more shows at virginiaaudio.org.